Our Father, we thank you for the beauty of your holiness. We thank you, Lord, for the penetrating power of the word of God. We're grateful, Lord, that you have not called us into your service and then expected us to do your work in our strength, but you are the one who empowers your people to do your will. And Lord, help us to recognize that each and every day in every act that we perform, every word we say, every thought we think, that we are to bring worship and glory to your name. Help us, Father, to come to that place where the Word of God so permeates our being that our attitudes and desires are guided by the truth of the Word and that in all that we do and say, we truly do honor you. Father, I pray that through us, others will see Jesus and will recognize the joy and the peace that we have because we live in a world in which chaos and, and concern and, and worry and, and all these things that are from the evil one seem to be in a crescendo. And so we pray, Father, that our light will shine brighter in these days. Lord, we ask for your special blessing upon us this hour. We know that the truth of your word is revealed by the Spirit. And so we trust that he will be our teacher. And again, Father, I pray that as the word is being taught all the way from the smallest uh, children to the prime timers today, that you will be present in every class and that you will uh, motivate every one of us to be learners. And as we have so often read and quoted from James, that we will not be hearers of the word only, but doers. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will turn to the fourth chapter of Exodus and verse 18. The fourth chapter of Exodus and verse 18. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro his father-in-law and said to him, Please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Shalom, go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will burden, harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. From the first verse of the third chapter through the 17th verse of the fourth chapter of Exodus, we find the record of Moses in that dramatic encounter with the great I Am at the burning bush at the base of Mount Horeb. And we've noted that Mount Horeb was also known as Mount Sinai. It's often referred to in the Old Testament as the mountain of God. It was there at the burning bush that God revealed himself to Moses, revealed his character and some of his attributes. 
And there God commissioned him to do a task, to carry a message to Egypt and to perform signs and wonders before Israel in Egypt. And God empowered him to carry out that task. But we noted, as we studied through that passage, that Moses had a lot of excuses as to why he shouldn't do this. God had given him a call to do a work. And God, in this case, was not going to allow him to shirk his duty. No matter what his excuse was, God countered that excuse and showed that it was no excuse and commanded him to go on. God was very patient, very patient with Moses. And Moses now has a task to do. And, and to me, again, it's, it's so like God, the way he ended the, the whole meeting. He just disappeared from the burning bush. And in the process, he said to Moses, get on with it, Moses. In this passage we've read this morning, I think you have to kind of put yourself in Moses' position here and to recognize, first of all, that after the burning bush experience, and, and as he sat and certainly thought about this whole thing, I don't think there welled up within him great enthusiasm to immediately go and do the task. Because God had bulldozed him to this point. So with something less than great enthusiasm, he has now to turn around and go back home. The impelling voice, of course, is the command of God to do what God has told him to do. So he begins this long trek back to Midian. Now again, if you look at satellite photographs of this peninsula, and sometimes they take them with various colored film, and so the uh, vegetation really shows up. Well, you'll notice in satellite photographs of uh, the Sinai Peninsula, very little vegetation shows up because there is very little vegetation in this virtually cloudless region of the world. It's kind of interesting if you ever notice when they're showing uh, uh, pictures on television of the blue marble, you know, the earth taken from space, and uh, if, if the picture in any way shows the African Southern Asian area, almost always you can see that part of it. Other places are under clouds and you're not sure what it is, but you can almost always see that Horn of Africa sticking out there and the Arabian Peninsula and the Sinai Peninsula because there's almost never any clouds there. Uh, it's, a, it's a real true desert region. And so Moses has to begin this long, arduous trek back. The distance he has taken the sheep is a testimony to the sparseness of the vegetation. Obviously, if near his home there was lots of grass to feed the sheep, why would he wander off down into the southern Sinai? He wouldn't. He's in pursuit of vegetation. And so he has traveled an estimated 150 miles from home. It's a long ways to push a herd of sheep by foot and to be alone. There, there is no indication in any of these passages that his wife and family are with him. So we assume that they're still back in the main camp, back in Midian, and, and that they are not with Moses, although it's possible they were there, but there is no indication that they were with him. So even if Moses was inclined to hurry home and get on with his task, he couldn't do it. He couldn't abandon these probably thousands of sheep and goats, whatever he had in the flock there, out there in the Sinai. He had to lead them back all the way to the land of Midian. 
Now the land of Midian was just around the top of the Red Sea on the east side from the Sinai Peninsula. And of course we don't know exactly where the main encampment was within the land of Midian. So give or take a few miles, we're talking about approximately 150 miles, that he had moved the herd. Now, I've never shepherded sheep, but I've read about people who have. And you don't really run sheep normally. Uh, you just slowly urge them along. And uh, so you're moving along at about a mile an hour, maybe a couple of miles an hour, if you can really get them to, to, to move. Uh, so, you know, if you push them for 10 miles, I mean, 10 hours a day, you've got 10, 15 miles maybe under your belt. And, and then certainly, if you've moved them at that speed, you've got to let them graze someplace for a while. And so we're looking at an absolute minimum. I mean, if we really push the herd 10 days to get back home, but we're probably looking at at least a month uh, getting this herd back home. And, and we don't know because it's possible he was on some kind of a herding cycle anyway that normally you went out for these months down there and then these months you came back and in the process of raising the sheep and getting them to the wool length that you want and all of this. So it may be that he still had the rest of that cycle to fill out. Uh, we don't know. The, the time frame is, is not given here. So certainly it took him a while to get the herd back and to come to this place of speaking with his father-in-law. So he had lots of time to think about what to say. What am I going to say to dad, Jethro? <laughs> what am I going to say to my wife? I mean, she's always lived here in the land of Midian, in, in the Bedouin tent out here, and she's never been to Egypt. She probably won't want to go to Egypt. And so he has to really think carefully about what he's going to say here to them. Now, he's served Jethro faithfully now for 40 years. Now, most of us would say, well, 40 years, and he's in for retirement. <laughs> you know, it's time to go on Social Security and forget this whole thing. Well, Moses is already 80 years old by this time, and, and he's just now to embark on the major event of his life, which will take another 40 years. I was reading the other day, somewhere in a paper, I think it was, where they've, the oldest documented woman or person living today is a woman in, was it France? Did any of you others read it? And... Uh, was it France, yeah, and uh, whose birthday they actually have documented, and she was born in 1875, so she's 120. And so she's the age to which Moses uh, lived, only Moses, it says, when he dies, was still strong of eye and strong of body, you know, prime of life type person. Most of us probably don't hope to reach 120, wouldn't want to. <laughs> Especially if that means living on in the world we're living in now, which it probably would. Anyway, uh, Moses had never given any hint, I think, to Jethro that he wanted to do anything else. Certainly that he had never given him any idea he wanted to go back to Egypt from whence he had fled. But now he's asking Jethro for a leave of absence. Hey, Pop, <laughs> I'd like to go back to Egypt and find out if my brethren are still alive. Now, when you think about that for a minute, you think, why is he saying that? God's already told him they just go back there and deliver them. So certainly they're alive. He knows that. So why is he giving this particular uh, story to Jethro? Well, it seemed probably to him to be the only way to convince Jethro uh, to let him go. Now, the scripture does not tell us whether or not he related the burning bush account to Jethro. Now, since he had chosen to submit to Jethro as chief of the clan, 
And the scripture tells us that Jethro was a priest, a priest unto Yahweh. It's possible that he did. That he told him all about the burning bush experience so that Jethro would be well convinced and would grant his consent. On the other hand, he may not have related the account for fear of being considered a lunatic, having hallucinations out, you know, burning bush and voices talking to you, right, huh? You've been too long with the sheep. You're sunstruck or something, you know. Could have been the accusation. So it's, it's possible he didn't relate this very, very personal encounter. I mean, this was a one-on-one -on -one encounter between God Almighty and his man. And the only reason we know about it is God inspired Moses to relate it. So it wasn't exactly a public appearance by God. Well, whatever he may have said to Jethro, Scripture simply relates that he requested reliefs, release from his duty so that he could go to the land of Egypt and discover the condition of his people. Now, as we read that passage, looking at verse 18 again, Moses departed and returned to Jethro as father-in-law and said to him, Please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now as you read that, it sounds like Moses said, Hey, I'd like to go to Egypt. He says, No problem, go. Well, I don't think it really happened that way. You know, Scripture has a tendency to compact things. And the time process isn't always clearly evident. And other conversations aren't always recorded here. I think that uh, Jethro probably isn't going to say, oh, sure, go ahead. You know, he probably is going to say, well, first of all, why? Why, why do you want to do this? And then when are you going to go? How long are you going to be gone? You know, when are you going to come back? He's going to want to have answers to a lot of questions before he's going to just up and say, yeah, sure, go in peace. Do, the, do what you've suggested. I think that uh, he said, well, boy, I've got to have to think about this for a while because who's going to take care of the sheep? You know, the reason you've been here is not only you're my son-in-law, but you're the strength that I've needed for my family. And now you're going to go. I think, of course, God moved on his heart, uh, Jethro's heart, to give to Moses permission. And to do so, I think, willingly. And we might say, what's the difference? Moses is 80 years old. He's his own man. What difference does it make what this older man, his father-in-law, of course, we don't know. His father-in-law might not have been that much older than Moses. Well, what difference did it really make what he said? Well, understanding the Bedouin society of that day or any day, we would have to realize it was very important because Moses had submitted to him as clan chief. And individuals in those days didn't just go off like we do today and run our own lives irrespective of anybody else. You fit within the community. You were part of the family framework. And since Jethro was the clan chief as well as his father-in-law, it was important to get permission because he wanted to maintain peace in the family and harmony. After all, he was married to Jethro's daughter. And, and for him just up and say, hey, I don't care what you say, I'm going off to Egypt, would cause a rupture in that relationship. And that would be a very serious problem for Moses. So in order to maintain a good relationship, he wanted Jethro's willing permission. And so he sought it. And God moved upon Jethro's heart to grant it. Now, was Moses anxious to get off to Egypt? Well, as you read this passage, you're not real sure he is. 
we, we read in verse 19, Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt. Well, God's already told him to do that. And he's already gotten permission to do that. Now God appears to him and says, Go to Egypt. I think Moses was a bit of a procrastinator at this point. <laughs> I don't think he was real anxious to go off and do this task. As he, of course, had been very reticent from the very beginning when he met God at the burning bush. But God is speaking to him and telling him, it's time, Moses, get on with it. Go and do what I've asked you to do. Now, God is a, is a God of understanding. And looking at Moses' heart, he probably saw that there were some residual fears in Moses' heart. So he goes on to say in, in this uh, audible encounter with Moses, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Those who chased you out of Egypt 40 years before, uh, the Pharaoh and all of his cronies, they're all in the grave. They will do you no harm. So in effect, what he was saying to Moses was, the wanted signs that were plastered all over the pyramids are now down, so you can return to Egypt with security. Well, with permission of Jethro and with the urgent word of God, order from God in his heart. Moses packs his tent, packs his supplies, packs his family, and starts out on the trek. Takes his wife and his sons with him. Now the question is at this point, was this a wise thing for him to do? Should he have packed his wife and his sons to head out on this journey? Or should he have just gone alone to, to do the task? Well, there's some interesting factors here. First of all, we just pass right over it when we, we read it and don't think much about it, I'm sure, where it says in verse 20, So Moses took his wife and his sons, mounted them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. But when you think about this for a minute, what, what does that wording really tell us? It says, Moses put his wife and his sons on a donkey and returned to Egypt. Now, if Moses also rode a donkey then it's just straightforward, nothing to, be, uh, to think about for uh, any length of time. But if it means that Moses walked while his wife and his sons were on a donkey, then this tells us something we may not have thought about before. And that would be that his sons are still immature, that they're still very young, and they need to ride on a donkey. Because if his sons were mature, they'd be walking also. And if that is true, then we've got to rethink this whole thing about Moses and his wife. It could have been, I mean, if his sons were still so young, I mean, we're talking about 40 years now he's been with Jethro. And we kind of assume that he married Zipporah probably, you know, within a few months, a year or so from the time he first got there. Well, that may not be true. It could be that he worked there for a while, maybe many years before he married Zipporah. Or, or it could also mean that Zipporah was, even though Scripture doesn't say anything about it, barren for many years, like Rebecca or Rachel, before she had these children. And in fact, as we go on in the, in the latter part of this, this chapter, it seems that the, the second son, at least, must have been very young yet, probably pre-10 in, in age. And so, you know, considering the fact that we often assume Moses married uh, Zipporah maybe a year or so after he first got there, so he was 41 when he married her. This is 39 years later. Uh, the children would have come quickly. Uh, well, you know, maybe not. Uh, 
and it seems that that may explain a little bit what happens in the next passage as we get to it. Whatever the case, whatever the case, he's taking his family on a very arduous trek. As I will be noting a little bit later on, he is not going to take the direct route to Egypt. He's going on a circuitous route. So we're talking about a journey that will probably cut in, in, encompass 400 miles of walking and donkey riding through the desert, through the wilderness of the Sinai. This is not exactly what you would call a vacation trip, you know, a honeymoon adventure. Not quite. There's one little phrase that's kind of interesting, too, at the end of verse 20, where it says, Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. It was Moses' staff. It had been Moses' staff for years and years and years. Now it's the staff of God because of the encounter at the burning bush. Because God had said, what is that in your hand, Moses? And throw it down and it you know, becomes one of the signs. And so now it's the staff of God. And, it's, and those of us, so certainly all of us, have studied the account of the Exodus and we know that Moses will use that staff many times to do other things than convert into serpents. He'll hold it over the Red Sea and it will part and he'll you know, touch a rock with it and it'll pour forth water. The staff of God. It's been touched. It's, it's a stick like all other sticks. But because it's been consecrated by God, it becomes the staff of God. And he takes it with him. Well, it's interesting, as we read through this passage, we can fly over it so quickly we don't even notice that, that he keeps running into God at several points along here. You know, after the burning bush, it seems like God keeps reappearing now very frequently. I mean, Moses has appeared to him in the land of Midian and said, now, get on with it, Moses, get on uh, down to uh, Egypt. And now he's on the journey and God appears to him again early in the journey. In uh, verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. How would you like to be hired to do a job and the boss is going to tell you, but by the way, I'm going to make this job really tough for you. <laughs> I'm going to make it hard for you to do the job. We'd probably say, I don't think I want this job. And of course, that's what Moses had said earlier on, too. God gave him a summary of what he was to do and what Pharaoh's reaction would be. Now, God has already done this. Back at the burning bush, God had already said, this is what's going to happen, this is what you're going to do. And now he's doing it again, saying, this is what's going to happen, this is what I am going to do. In verse 21, we're introduced for the first time in Scripture to the concept of God hardening a person's heart. This is a really difficult concept. For many people, it, it, it just doesn't seem possible. But this is what the Scripture says here. Let me say that, first of all, as we read through the narrative of the plagues, we're going to discover that in the Hebrew there are three different words used which are translated hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now the word which is used in this particular passage literally means to harden one's heart against someone or something. 
In other words, to build, to steel yourself against them. It's literally what the word means here. The other words that are used later on, uh, for example, in the seventh chapter of Exodus, there's a word which is used which means to become stubborn and rebellious. Just like an ox might be to the yoke for the first time. <laughs> I don't want to do this thing, you know. And, and that's one, one of the words used for hardening Pharaoh's heart in the eighth, seventh chapter of Exodus. Then the eighth chapter, there's another word uh, which is used, which means that the heart is heavy, dull, implacable. That it just can't absorb the truth. It can't see the light. It's, it's hardened because it's full of sin, totally in darkness and iniquity, and cannot perceive the truth. And, and as we think about Pharaoh, we, we can understand how that would be true. Pharaoh was supposed to be God. He, he was a representative in the fact of being himself divine of the sun god. He, he was related to Horus, the great falcon god. And so in his divinity, he had no room for other divinities, especially a divinity who claimed to be the supreme and only God. And that Pharaoh, therefore, was no more than another man. You could understand why he would be hardened against that kind of a thought. Because he had been raised from the time he was a teeny infant to believe he was divine. It's kind of a shock to come to a place and realize, oops, I'm no better off than that peasant out there who's trying to get water out of the Nile into his field. When we study the narrative of the ten plagues, and of course it'll take us a little while to work through those, we're going to see that it's not until the sixth plague, which is the plague of boils, which is discussed in the ninth chapter of Exodus, that the scripture clearly teaches that God in his sovereignty hardened Pharaoh's heart. All of the other references to hardening up to that point are really Pharaoh's actions. Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart. Pharaoh's resistance to God. But there was a point at which God then divinely intervened. Pharaoh would be very insensitive to God's word. He would be blind to the truth of God. And, of course, you and I experience this uh, frequently if we've tried to talk to someone who, you know, has no Christian background of any kind. And, and they don't get the point at all. <laughs> they just think you're one of the religious nuts, you know, the radical right or something here in America. And they, they, they just don't see the reality of the truth. In fact, we, we live in a day and age where the church is often taken off on the on the tangents of believing these many uh, really pantheistic ideas uh, about God and uh, what God really wants. And, and you can see how we have the so-called greening of America and we have the greening of the church where, where people start absorbing this idea that the real way in which we're the savior of the world here or we're expressing God is to make sure we preserve the environment, you know. And, and that we're hugging a tree or whatever else because that's really manifesting what God wants to happen here. Now, there's nothing wrong with conservationism. That's biblical. But to endow the environment with deity is pantheism. 
And that is, has been a problem that's faced the church from square one. You go clear back to the writings of the New Testament and Paul attacked Gnosticism and Gnosticism has a strong pantheistic element within it. And uh, the church has always dealt with that. The church has been heavily impacted by Platonism and Neoplatonism and Aristotelian thought and all of this stuff which has pantheistic uh, roots. And, and trying to get away from the, I mean, all of creation is God's, but all of creation is not God. God indwells all things. In Colossians, we're told that by him all things consist, but that doesn't mean if we've gotten to hug a tree, we're hugging a part of God. But, but many people in, within a, quote, Christian framework think that way. That's not biblical. It's literally heresy. And th this kind of thinking has permeated the church. And many of the early church fathers even uh, taught pantheistic ideas. I don't know if you read into some of what they say. Uh, they were probably unconscious of that. But it seems to nevertheless be there. Of course, many of them were the great fathers of the, um, of the Catholic movement. Uh, probably the most outstanding would be Thomas Aquinas, who was thoroughly permeated with Aristotelian thought and did his best to make Aristotelian Greek pantheism and Christianity fit and blend together as if it were a nice, uh, coherent whole, which, of course, it is not. So Pharaoh, uh, representing this kind of thinking, is not going to be open to the truth. Now, Pharaoh had the power of choice. When God created Adam and Eve and put him in the garden, he gave them the power of choice. They had the power of moral choice. They could choose to do right. They could choose to do wrong. Now, if you talk to someone who is a case-hardened Calvinist, they will say, and that's the last time man had a choice. And as soon as they made their choice after that, zip, it was over, and nobody had a choice. After that, God said, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell, and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, if you're a good follower of Islam, that might be very fitting. But as we read scripture, I think we need to be real careful about that kind of thinking. I believe you and I have the same power of choice that Adam and Eve had. You can choose to do right, and you can choose to do wrong. Just as Adam and Eve had that power in the garden. We may yield to the conviction of the Holy Spirit or we may resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I don't see how it can be denied because anybody who's honest recognizes that in our own lives we have at moments yielded and we have at moments resisted. And that's why sin exists in the heart of a Christian. Oh, there are various groups within Christianity today who declare that sin doesn't exist, that we may make a little mistake here and there, but we don't really sin. If it were true that only Adam and Eve had the power of making true choice and, and that nobody after that, then a lot of statements in Scripture are, are irrelevant. You know, they, they have no relationship to reality. I'd like to read two such statements, one by Moses and one by Joshua, that were given at the end of the ministry of each one. One in the case of Moses in the last, at the end of Deuteronomy, next to the last chapter, or, well... I guess close to the end of Deuteronomy anyway, not quite the last chapter. 
uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is part of Moses' last counsel to Israel before he would uh, be taken from the scene. And God is speaking through Moses, and God says, this is verse 15 of Deuteronomy 30. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. That's an offer of choice. You've got two choices here, life and prosperity, death and adversity. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. By loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him, for this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. The gospel is very clear in the Old Testament. It may not specify redemption through Christ in so many words, even though through prophetic statements, particularly in Isaiah and some of the other prophecies, there is uh, implication of that. But, but as, you, as you look at this passage, I mean, he is saying, choose between life and death. It's your choice. If you choose life, it means that you will love God, obey his voice, and hold fast to him. You know, it's not just a matter of saying, aha, I choose life, I'm in like Flynn, I can just cruise the rest of the way. No. There is no in like Flynn. <laughs> because if we have chosen life, we choose to obey. And obedience is better than sacrifice, we read in Samuel. And, and that is going to be made such a, a, a big point in the next little section of Exodus as we move along to a very, very strange encounter. The words are Joshua of Joshua are in the same tenor. If you look at the 19th verse of the 24th chapter of Joshua, this is his, you know, final great oration to Israel. And it sounds a lot like what Moses said. Then Joshua said to the people, and, and what he's saying in this, in this first verse is, in your own strength, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. 
Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst, incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God, and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And by the way, they're still looking for that stone. I, I mean, genuinely they are. We've been to Shechem several times and they, they've talked about looking for the stone where this wor these words were inscribed. And they found a stone with some words, but whether it's this stone or not, nobody knows. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it has heard the words of the Lord. And, and again, that's not a pantheistic statement. That, that's just a, you know, a, 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 a word picture. I mean, the stone hasn't literally heard anything, but, you know, it's, it's a witness against you in the writing that's upon it, which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, lest you deny your God. And Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. God has sovereignly chosen to give the power of moral choice to the human race. Choose you this day whom you will serve, Joshua would say in another passage. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Elijah would stand on Mount Carmel and say, Why are you halting between two opinions? If the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. Choose. Choose. Pharaoh would have to choose. He would choose wrong. But it's interesting to note that there's a day coming when that power of moral choice will no longer belong to an individual. The power of moral choice is limited to this life and this life only. In eternity, it's gone. It will no longer be there. If you'll turn to the 45th chapter of Isaiah, verse 20, these are the words of the Lord through, through Isaiah. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, I will, and will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were, who were angry at him shall be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. And of course, most of us are familiar, I think, with the parallel passage in Philippians chapter 2, where it says of Jesus Christ that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess in heaven above, on earth, and under the earth. 
there is a day in which there is no longer a choice. Every knee will bow. Whether they lived out their lives committed to Islam or Buddha or whatever, they will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. They will have no choice because God is almighty. And they must acknowledge. Those who don't acknowledge him in this life, of course, it's, no, it's going to be of no eternal benefit to do so then because it will be a forced bow. But to those who have chosen to bow in this life, it's eternal reward, blessing in his presence. Pharaoh will one day bow the knee to Jesus Christ, but it will do him no good because he will have already made his choice in this life. God sovereignly chose to give us choice. That does not deny his sovereignty in any way because he's the one who made the choice to begin with. Pharaoh in his sin, his, his heavy, dull, implacable heart, his arrogance, oh, arrogance is probably the greatest factor in, in keeping hearts from, from surrendering to Christ. The arrogance that comes from the power of choice to submit to another, especially in our society where you know, rugged individualism is, is held up as the ideal. I can make it on my own. And you have people like Lenin and Marx coming along and talking about Christianity as a crutch for those people who can't make it on their own. It'd be interesting if you could interview Marx or Lenin or Engels now, what they'd say. They'd be very much like the rich man who was in hell and said, Lord, let me go back and warm my brothers. <laughs> Finally, due to the intransigence of his heart, God confirmed the hardness that was already in Pharaoh's heart. I think it's really important as we look at this that God is not walking along here and here's Pharaoh, innocent guy, you know, just normal guy, uh, not doing anything bad, just being Pharaoh. And God comes along and just rams a hard heart into him and makes him so that he won't listen to God and goes to hell because he refuses. Because God made him refuse. No. Pharaoh had already resisted God. Pharaoh had a hard heart to begin with. Pharaoh didn't want anything to do with the Almighty. And so God simply confirmed him in the hardness that was already there, sealed it forever. God does that in every life that rejects him. The person who dies without Christ, God has sealed their heart forever to doom because they have not chosen to yield to him. And so God simply confirmed the hardness that was already in Pharaoh's heart. Remember, as those of you who were with us through Genesis, way back in the sixth chapter of Genesis, God said before the flood, my spirit will not strive with men forever. In other words, he's not going to deal with hard hearts forever. There's a point at which he will confirm that hardness. He will seal it in and forever doom that person. And so Pharaoh, through his own intransigence, had that finally sealed in the case and it forever doomed him and it doomed his nation to great destruction. Hard for us to imagine. We read about the plagues in there and we don't really get, I, I don't think we can fully picture how a nation could be so destroyed by plague after plague after plague. 
You know, some of the plagues don't sound all that bad, like you just need a little off, you know. You don't have to worry about the bugs or a little raid or whatever, you know. But you can imagine, I think, maybe, if every time you do a, drew a breath, you sucked in a thousand bugs. I mean, that's a terrible plague. And the other things which we'll be studying, I mean, the land was destroyed. And, uh, you know, it, they argue about when exactly this took place and which pharaoh was the pharaoh of the Exodus. But however you look at it, historically, Egypt went into radical decline about the time of the Exodus. In fact, it doesn't really matter if you go with the longer chronology, the early chronology, the 15th century or the 13th century. In either case, Egypt really plummets downhill in a hurry and goes into eclipse and becomes a very powerless nation. And that could easily be the result of these massive plagues which swept over the land of, uh, of Egypt. God used, of course, this to glorify himself. God used Pharaoh's resistance, which he confirmed, to glorify himself before Israel, before Egypt, and before the world. Before the world in that we read about it in God's word. And what's interesting is that Israel would forever look back and glorify God for what he did in Egypt. I mean, it's one of the main themes you run across so many times in other passages of Scripture. I've simply chosen one that's on your outline there that uh, maybe we'll take a minute to look at in the 78th chapter of the book of Psalms, 78th Psalm. And there are many other examples of this in the Psalms and in other places in the Old Testament. But let's just for a minute uh, look at Psalm 78 where we have one example of how this is used to remind Israel of God's power and of God's glory. Verse 43, When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zon, and turned their rivers to blood, and their streams they could not drink, he set, sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them, and frogs which destroyed them. He gave also their crops to the grasshopper, and the product of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hailstones and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave over their cattle also to the hailstones and their herds to bolts of lightning. And he sent upon them his burning anger, fury, and indignation and trouble, and bands of destroying angels. I mean, I mean can we picture the spiritual warfare going on here? I mean, God is moving into the den of, of Satan's power here. One of the the key parts of the world that was under satanic control, a nation completely dedicated to the worship of demons in the form of the various gods and goddesses of Egypt. And here the angels are come storming in. It's kind of a Frank Peretti type, you know, <laughs> idea. I, you know, Frank Peretti ought to take off on this and, and write one of his uh, novels, <laughs> you know, Piercing the Darkness type thing. Uh, about the, the terrible spiritual warfare that came on as these destroying angels stormed into Egypt and brought this great destruction, knocking aside the demons that stood in the way. And he leveled a path for his anger, and he did not spare their soul from death, but gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the first issue of their virility in the tents of Ham. The tents of Ham? 
What's that got to do with anything? Who is Ham? How's that got to do with this? Well, you remember probably that Ham had a son whose name was Mizraim, and Egypt is known as the land of Mizraim. So the descendants of Ham, of the sons of Ham, were the Egyptians. And he led forth his own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them safely, so they did not fear, but the sea engulfed their enemies. And there are many other references in Scripture reminding Israel of the glory of God and his might in not just destroying a people. It's not like, oh, we gloat over a bunch of dead Egyptians, but of the tremendous spiritual clash which took place there. And God triumphed over Amun-Ra and, uh, you know, Hathor and Osiris and Isis and, and Thoth and all the various gods and goddesses of Egypt who represent demonic beings. God crushed them. It's a grand victory. We've got to look at it as a lot more than just a piece of ancient history. But it's a tremendous spiritual clash. And as we go through those passages, we'll, uh, we'll note how these plagues did relate to various specific areas of principalities and powers and their domination and how God rendered those principalities and powers powerless. Finally, when God says in the 21st verse back there in the fourth chapter of Exodus that what Pharaoh's reaction was going to be, it was not to just say, okay, uh, by the way, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. He's going to have a hard heart. What he is doing by this is assuring Moses. You might say, huh, it doesn't sound much like assurance, you know. It's kind of like Jeremiah being told, go out and preach the gospel, but nobody's going to listen to you. Uh, kind of discouraging. But what he's saying is, if God is the one who ultimately seals the hardness of the heart, as he will in the case of Pharaoh, since it's God who does that, you have nothing to fear because if God has commanded you to do a task, he will enable you to do it no matter the hardness because it's God who's in charge of the whole thing including Pharaoh's hardness of heart. Well, next Sunday we're going to look at one of the strangest events in, uh, in the book of Exodus. A lot of strange events in Exodus. But this is a really, really strange one. Uh, considering what we've already seen so far, why, why God does what he does, we think, whoa, you know. But, you know, that's why I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, but years ago when I was doing graduate study, one of the professors made some reference to the fact that the God of the Old Testament was psychotic <laughs> because of the way he acted in various things. Well, you could under, you know, that's the way you might think if you don't know God and don't understand the word and know the, the underlying truth of what's going on here. You just look at it as a, as a dull-minded, implacable, intransient sinner. Obviously, you're going to say, oh, God sure acts weird here. You know, he's up one minute down. He's manic depressive or something. But in, in reality... Of course, we see God is acting absolutely consistently with his character and with the needs of mankind. So we'll look at that event next week.